Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Charkabordi. And the question that we have on the table, who was America's first black millionaires, isn't one that you think would be really up for debate. I mean, most people, when they discuss America's first black female millionaire, they're talking about a woman named Sarah Breedlove Walker, who's also known as Madam C.J. Walker. Walker was born in 1867. She was the daughter of former slaves, and she was raised in a shack in Louisiana. She, however, managed to work her way all the way up from being a washerwoman to owning her own multi-million dollar company called Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. And kind of the key to her success was inventing a formula for a product that gave African-American women smooth, shiny hair. And she did that in 1905. So really self-made woman worked her way up. Most historians say that Walker became a millionaire around 1914 or 1915, so she was nearly 50 years old when she got there. Yeah, she's the lady who you learn about when you're studying black history in school. You learn, you know, you see her picture, you'd probably recognize her if you, if you saw her, you'd recognize her advertisements even. She's very famous even today. Exactly, but it's someone else. Another person named Sarah, in fact. How about that? Sarah's (laughs) very popular. This person may have actually beaten her to the punch, and it was a black girl named Sarah Rector who became a millionaire somewhere around 1911 or 1912. And the really amazing part about this is that she was only 10 years old. And I'm just going to pause here to say that a lot of our dates in this podcast come from an article about Rector that was published in The Crisis last year. The Crisis is the NAACP magazine, and it was an article called The Richest Colored Girl in the World. So... We kind of have to, I guess, just pick one set of dates because there's a lot of debate about what dates happened, the when, the where, everything like that, because there's really not that much information out there about her. Yeah, not much that was that was documented. Um, but, you know, if, if we're going to assume, though, she's 10 years old, it's 1911, 1912. At such a young age, obviously, her wealth did not come from hard work like Madam C.J. Walker from the successful business. Instead, it was the result of a combination of legislation, oil speculation, and quite obviously, a little bit of good luck. But at the same time, she didn't have it easy either. She had really humble beginnings. Her story, though, is a little different from some others that you might hear about growing up black in North America around the turn of the 20th century. She was born March 3rd, 1902, in Indian Territory, which would later become the state of Oklahoma in 1907. So this was kind of northeast Oklahoma, so you can think about it that way. And she was born near the town of Taft, which was an all-black town. But there's something interesting about being born in Indian Territory at this time, because even though she's black, by birthright, she's a member of the Creek Nation. Go figure. Right. So here's the background to that. Some Native Americans in Indian Territory had African slaves prior to the Civil War, just like some white people did. However, as a result of the Treaty of 1866, which was between the U.S. government and the five civilized tribes, and that included the Creek, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole tribes, these tribes had to abolish slavery and make the former slaves, who were known from that point as freedmen, full members of their tribes. And as such, they had quote, an equal interest in the soil. So 
it was amazing because blacks finally had their own land. It was a big landmark thing to happen for them. Yeah, and they were members of Indian nations. So kind of a, a strange combination of identities here. But soil, that, that important word there, became really significant in 1887 with the passage of the Dawes Allotment Act. And basically it was a policy that did away with communal tribal land holdings in preparation for turning Indian territory into a state. And the aim was to absorb tribe members into U.S. society. And as a part of the act, a few things happened. One was reservation lands, which were, of course, giant blocks of land, were broken up into individual parcels that were each in turn given to individual tribe members. So every tribe member got 160 acres of land. And then once everything was divided up and everybody got his or her share, there was a surplus of land that was sold to white settlers. Yeah, and in this situation, Native Americans and black freedmen, they were considered equally when these land parcels were handed out. So as part of this act, Native Americans and black freedmen were considered equally when the land parcels were actually handed out. And something interesting happened as part of this. About 4,407 black children received nearly 1 million acres of land in eastern Oklahoma. So everybody was getting a piece, and they did too. And since the distribution of these lands lasted until 1906, Rector was one of those kids that got some land as well. But just getting the land isn't what made Rector rich. In fact, a lot of the land that the Native Americans and freedmen ended up with was considered to be completely worthless. They got the rocky, hilly stuff, basically the stuff that you couldn't do anything with. And the land that was considered farmable and useful was given to white settlers or put up for white settlers to be able to purchase, yeah, I should say. make some money off of it. The rector got her little parcel of land when she was about four years old, and it was located in an area known as Glen Pool. And initially it was appraised as only being worth $556.50. I think that's important to, to add that little note in there. And her dad, Joseph Rector, was just not interested on owning this property or his daughter owning the property because he was going to have to pay taxes on it. So he tried to sell it off. He petitioned the Muskogee County Court to um, to let him sell it, but there were restrictions in place about the land, and he couldn't sell it because Sarah was a minor, and therefore she couldn't legally enter into business contracts. So he had to keep paying taxes on what everyone thought was entirely worthless land. And it was a struggle for the family because they didn't have a lot of money, so it's really kind of a significant thing. Then, however, in February 1911, A businessman named B.B. Jones made a discovery on Rector's property that kind of changed everything, and that was oil. Yeah, cue the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, definitely. Um, Much like the dates we have to mention here, exact figures regarding the income that she ended up getting from this oil tend to vary. But we can say that by about 1913, her land had already earned around $300,000, and her income was increasing at a rate of $10,000 per month. So even by today's standards, a lot lot of money. money. According to the crisis, some national newspapers reported that in 1913, her income from oil revenue was as high as $50,000 a month. So a whole lot of money. And you'd think then, if she's bringing in all of this money, her family would at least be living comfortably, even if, if they didn't have access to all of it. 
did have a little something going on. But reports had her still living in a two-room shanty with her family, which included five siblings, so tight quarters there, wearing a cheap dress and no shoes. Plus, she wasn't even in school. So clearly something had gone terribly wrong if this little girl could be making so much money and gotten so lucky with her allotment of land and still she's living in poverty. Right. And it didn't really help that while all this was going on, Rector may have become an orphan. And we say may have. It doesn't (laughs) seem like that should be a question, but we say may have because some sources say that her mother, Rosa Rector, had died of tuberculosis a few years prior and that her dad reportedly died in prison in 1914. However, there are some historical articles from the Chicago Defender newspaper that have her dad dying as late as 1922. So, big discrepancy. But even with her dad in the picture, a white guardian was appointed to oversee her estate. Well, I think that's kind of interesting to note that whether her parents were alive or dead didn't really even matter because there was going to be this white guardian in the picture. Yeah, it was really common at the time, and not just for kids, but also for adult freedmen and Native Americans whose land turned out to be worth something when the oil was discovered. The Chicago Defender actually called it the birth of a new kind of shark, quote, the oil grabber guardian. Sounds like a shark. Definitely. In a book called The Greatest Gamblers, which is about American oil exploration, and it's by a woman named Ruth Sheldon Knowles, Sarah Rector was one of the lucky people in these situations. Others were cheated out of their lands, or even worse, um, and this is really sad, but the book relates the story of two other black orphans who had land allotments in Glen Pool. The passage reads, These luckless waifs were murdered in a shack mined with dynamite by a group of whites who were ready to claim their wealth with forged documents and false heirs. So the situation definitely could have been worse, but even then, things weren't really going well. But all of a sudden, Sarah Rector had another stroke of luck, and that was when... Some people, including a special agent for the NAACP and the U.S. Children's Bureau, started looking into the mismanagement of her estate in early 1914. So started poking around and realizing something was definitely wrong here. Also, around the same time, newspapers heard about the little girl's story. And this photo of her standing in front of the dirty shanty where she lived started circulating. And, Dublina, you sent me the the photo earlier today. It's very sad and pathetic looking, this poor little girl in a tattered dress standing in front of her her little shanty. Yeah, morose expression. Very adorable, but very sad. So after this investigation started, the NAACP got heavily involved in it and started advocating on her behalf. In fact, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the head of the NAACP, he got interested in her case and really got actively involved in it. So by October 1914, they actually managed to get Rector out of Oklahoma and into school. There's some discrepancy, again, over exactly what sort of schooling she received. According to the crisis records show that she was at the Children's School at Tuskegee Institute from December 19. 1914 to September 1915. Booker T. Washington himself is said to have made the arrangements for her admission and oversaw her education there. And then later she went to and graduated from Lincoln High School in Kansas City. But some other sources say that she went to high school and then attended Tuskegee University. So again, just a difference. And I think it might even be semantics here, you know, what we call Tuskegee today as opposed to what they called it in the past and, and so forth. But 
Yeah, who definitely. knows? We do know, though, that she did attend Tuskegee at some point, but it didn't exactly solve her problems. And that was partly because the people managing her estate weren't doing a very good job of it. And the people who were trying to help her couldn't get that control away from her white guardian. They did manage to get her a little bit, though. They they managed to get her about $1,000 a month and some better clothes to wear. And the Muscogee County Court oversaw her estate a little more carefully. So there were some benefits to having all this attention from the media and from the NAACP. People, however, just kept trying to get control of her estate during this time. Even while she was at Tuskegee, she's said to have received hundreds of letters from white suitors who wanted to marry her when she came of age. She got about 20 from Germany, for example, when her story ended up in a paper there. And people were just professing their love and wanted to get married to her so that they could have her fortune. So the people looking out for her were understandably concerned by all of these declarations of love pouring in, you know, this young girl might be led astray. And in fact, the black press called on the National Federation of Women's Clubs to make sure that Sarah wasn't, quote, honeyed with any love affairs by fakers and grafters, but that on the other hand, she becomes well educated and encouraged to marry one of her own race. Um, so they're worried she's going to be taken advantage of even further. And she was lucky that she had people to look out for her. She manages to dodge these overtures and makes it to age 18. She's finally of age. He's not a minor anymore. So she gets some access to her fortune. And it's unclear exactly how much of her estate that she ultimately received. A 2004 article in the Southeast Missouri says that she eventually got $3 million. However, a Chicago Defender piece said that there was really no exact figure available. So it kind of fluctuates what you see of what she got. Gets a substantial sum, though, regardless of what the exact figure was. But at 19, she bought this huge mansion at 2000 East 12th Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, And that's where she settled with her family. They finally could move out of the more humbler abodes they had been living in. And it seemed like things were finally looking up for her. You know, she's getting to use this money. She's so luckily gotten. Um, but then, unfortunately, Missouri changed its legal majority age from 18 to 21. So sorry, Sarah, but you're back to being a minor again. So at this point, her white quote, friends, and you see that written that way a lot of times, we're referring to her friends, quote, unquote, in Oklahoma. Some of these folks, once again, stepped into the picture. They they stepped up to take advantage of her situation. And specifically, a guy named Jim Collins petitioned the court for guardianship of Sarah and said basically that she wasn't competent enough to manage her estate, even though she had attended high school and was educated. A judge in a white court, however, at that point denied his petition after reviewing everything. He really felt that she had handled everything well. His exact quote was that she has handled the more than $750,000 worth of property she owns with such astuteness. And he also ruled that she was mentally sound enough to not need a guardian and complimented her intelligence and thrift. So we're going to talk about that thrift a little later. But um, finally, though, with this judge's ruling, Rector was able to control what was rightfully hers. And um, even though, you know, the judge's assessment wasn't totally 
on par, <laughs> at least the thrift part. Yeah, we don't know too much about her adult life, but what we do know is that she wasn't exactly conservative with her fortune. She loved fancy cars, and she loved to drive them really fast. She bought a limo, a hutmobile, and a silver-plated Lincoln. And Silver-plated. Pretty fancy. I mean, I just want to, like, emphasize that for everybody. Sarah's obsessed with the silver-plated Lincoln, everyone. I, I kind of am obsessed, I guess, because I'm just wondering... I mean, what do you have to do to keep your silver-plated car looking good? Polish, frequently. Polish, yeah. Well, if she didn't have to work, then she wouldn't have had time on her hands, so maybe she got to polish her car <laughs> a lot. I don't know. Drive it around the block. Regardless, she used to race around town a lot in both the Hutmobile and the silver-plated Lincoln, and this was a time when it wasn't at all common for African-American women to be behind the wheel, so kind of breaking down some boundaries right off the bat. She also loved clothes. She apparently had a taste for European gowns. And she was also a frequent customer of a downtown jeweler. So she liked diamonds as well. She liked fancy things. So at 20, she married a guy named Kenneth Campbell, who eventually became a partner of a very successful local African-American business uh, or a businessman named Homer B. Roberts, who, interestingly, was one of or maybe the first African-American auto dealer in the United States. So I'm guessing that Kenneth Campbell might have shared Sarah's love of of the silver-plated lady. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe that's how she got her car deals. <laughs> she picked him up one day. <laughs> so Sarah and Kenneth, they threw lavish parties at their home, entertaining the likes of musicians Duke Ellington and Count Basie and boxers like Joe Lewis and Jack Johnson. So definitely different from the other millionaires we discussed earlier in the podcast, Madam C.J. Walker. Walker spent a lot of her money on philanthropy. However, some sources do say that in addition to having her limo and driver take her three kids to school, Rector also had the limo and the chauffeur take some neighborhood kids to a local elementary school. So, you know... A little mix of things. And I mean, I I can't help but think a little of Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, too. I think she was sort of known more for the the high life, hanging out with with fancy people and buying fancy things. Yeah, it was a player in the Harlem Harlem Renaissance, right? Definitely. So, you know, they I guess between these two women, they're kind of skirting both worlds. Yep, they both skirted both worlds and they both made a difference in their communities, kind of in their own way. For example, in a book called Take Up the Black Man's Burden, which is about Kansas City's African-American community, and it's by Charles E. Coulter, he notes how Rector used her wealth, at least in the 1920s, to overcome obstacles facing other African-Americans at the time. So what this means, one example of how she did this was by ignoring Jim Crow conventions, or basically ignoring them in downtown clothing stores. She was one of the few and maybe the only African-American woman who could try on her clothes before purchasing them. I think that's pretty amazing. I mean, that sounds like a small thing, but that's that could make a really big difference in, in how people in your community were perceived. But uh, a lot of sources indicate that Rector ended up spending a lot of her estate. And I mean, I guess that's not too hard to imagine with all of these cars and European clothes and, and jewels and the fancy house. But according to the Southeast Missouri article that was due in large part not to to all those fine tastes, but to her taste for gambling. Yeah, she ended up having to sell her mansion, and her husband divorced her, according to some sources. She also ended up moving back to Oklahoma for a time with her kids and passed away eventually in 1967. So I know that seems like we just kind of rushed through the end of her life, but as we said, there's really no definitive biography out there about her. Um, so 
a lot of the details are pretty fuzzy. Yeah, kind of an unglamorous sounding end, though. For a millionaires, yes, but it does seem like her kind of triumph was in not really suffering the same fate that the other black children during that time in Oklahoma did. Well, and becoming a poster child for this problem, too, this this land problem uh, and helping other kids get their, their rights. Yeah, and she, for a time, she got to kind of live how she wanted, as she wanted. You know, she said the where, the when, and that's something. Definitely. So there may be a little more research in the works about her. Uh, the Southeast Missouri article that we reference a lot in the story is actually about a woman named Jerry Sanders who's done a lot of research on Rector's life. And I think she's written a little, like a chapter in a book about Homer B. Roberts, the man that we mentioned before. And I know that there are others doing research on her. So hopefully there will be some kind of definitive biography soon. Yeah. And it would it would be great, too, to hear a little more of Sarah Rector's own voice. I mean, I think you were mentioning earlier that Kind of reminded you of Ellen Craft a little bit. You know, it's clearly Ellen Craft's story. She's the one in the amazing disguise. She's the one trying to keep her identity under wraps. But when we read her narrative, we don't get too much of that. And I mean, I, I kind of felt the same way with this story. Clearly, Sarah Rector, she's the central figure, but we don't know much about her. Yeah, the only direct quote I saw from her was in that Southeast Missouri article, and it relates how she would get pulled over sometimes for speeding and defiantly say to the officers who pulled her over, do you know who I am? I, I like that. I think that's pretty awesome. I, mean, I guess if you're going to leave just one quote, one available quote, that's a good one. Yeah, it displays some self-confidence that she had. And I mean, I think it kind of says what the story is about. Do you know who I am? Yes, people knew who she was, and that was a big deal in the 1920s. And now hopefully you guys know who she is, too. I mean, I, I had never heard of her before, so um, it's definitely been an interesting story to learn about. Yeah, one that we want to learn more about, and not just her story, as we said, but the other children who are in the same situation as her in Oklahoma during this time period. So I think there was another little boy named Danny Tucker who also made some money and managed to escape being kidnapped or murdered or, you know, otherwise separated from his fortune. So if you know any stories related to this one um, or anything else to add about Kansas City in the 1920s, you can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can look us up on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter at Missed in History. Or if you want to learn a little bit more about how a million dollars can be made, we actually have an article <laughs> on our website called How to Make a Million Dollars, and you can look it up by visiting our website and typing that into the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 